even if you did, it's old and gone. So, all right, well, I'm going to um, go ahead and get started. We're going to talk about the continuum of, it says end of life care, but we're really going to talk about palliative care. And uh, as I told Kelly when I came running in the door, that, uh, it's what I've been doing all morning. Um, when you're caring for geriatric patients, you are caring for people who have usually an accumulation of chronic illnesses. Chronic illnesses that are not going to be cured, they may be managed so they stay stable for periods of time, but usually what happens with chronic illness is people are here and they kind of perk along on this level and then they drop down to a new level and then they puddle along and then eventually depending on the chronic illness, they usually get to a period of time where there's a more steep decline. And that's when, you know, the palliation you've been doing, the management of the chronic illness becomes more end-of-life care. So we're going to talk about how that all fits together um, and why it's so important for those of us who are taking care of older adults um, to be aware of how this works. So we're going to look, we're talk, we're going to talk about the difference between palliative care and hospice care. We're going to talk about barriers to a good death. And we're going to discuss strategies to improve end of life care for our patients. Um, we know in 2007, which is the uh, last data we have that's reliable, 2.4 million people died in this country. 72% of them were over age 65. So the geriatric population, definitely the person, the people experiencing the majority of the deaths, as well it should be. Um, I hate to think about the other, you know, 28%. We know those are all people who are much younger. 38.3% um, of hospice users are cancer patients. There used to be a much larger number than that were cancer patients. Now in hospice care, there's many more people with heart disease, lung disease, and other types of terminal illness, things like um, ALS and other neurologic diseases. The American Board of Medical Specialties offers a certification for physicians in hospice and palliative uh, medicine. and the uh, Association for Nurses for Hospice and Palliative Care offer a certification for RNs. They also offer certification for advanced practice nurses. Um, and you're uh, certified as an advanced practitioner in palliative care. And I've been that for ever since they first offered the um, certification, it, because it seems such a no-brainer, because that's what I do all the time. I take care of people who are sick, and then they die. Um, okay, I want you to think for a moment about, you know, in your own head, what would you define as a quick death, and where would it happen? And I'm going to go around the room and just say, what's a good death for you? Pain-free in my sleep. There you go. I'd say about the same, not in a hospital okay. bed. <laughs> Pain-free at home. Okay. Pain-free at home. Pain-free in the hospital. Okay. I would say... You know, you just want to <laughs> I'm going to come back to you and ask you why you said that. Go ahead. I would say, um, you know, when I should have been able to say goodbye to everybody, and then... Yeah. Okay. 
Okay. Not be a burden to the rest of my family. Do not be a burden, okay. Pain free is uh, obvious. Um, hopefully quick. But quick. Uh, I mean, I don't. I don't think I want to just be hit by a car and die. I, I probably would like to get things in order. I'm, I kind of would like things. So sometime to get your wife in order. Want to make sure my kids don't have to like have no idea what to do. Okay. Organize things. Yep. And organize. All right. <laughs> An organized death, then. Let's <laughs> <laughs> organize this death. Exactly. Planned. Maybe it's a Swedish thing. Yes. <laughs> um, I think to uh, a good death, to have um, my loved ones, mm -hmm. um, to not be a burden to them, achieve mm -hmm. uh, a sense of control, and um, pain free. Okay, pain free, control, loved ones with you. Prolonged dying. And not a long time. No, okay. like I don't want to be like years yeah. holding on to a body that yeah. is gone. Yeah. I also want to organize. <laughs> <laughs> and it could, I'm better at letting go of the control, but that's yeah. like, like a controlled, I, I would love to know how, you know, when and where and. Um, <laughs> but pain free and um, a lot of what you said, you know, yeah. and and to be at peace with <clears throat> myself mm -hmm. and with my life. That's important. Yep. I want enough time to be able to get my trip in to Italy <laughs> and to just, you know have the affairs in order so that the kids are all set. Yeah. And the pain free is great, but if it's not, I can cope. Um, a good death for me would be surrounded by family um, and to be comfortable. Um, and I'm going to say I would prefer to die in a hospital. That way my family doesn't have to walk by those bed linens that I was in or be in the same room where that Is occurred. That, and, okay, good. Good. I thought maybe, but yeah. I... Okay. So they wouldn't have to constantly re be reminded you died in that bed. Yeah. Okay. I would say suddenly, my grandmother choked to death having um, dinner with friends. And I think for all of us, that was a very graceful exit for her, even though physically it wasn't. How about her friends? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another story. That's <laughs> another story. <laughs> all right. So um, sudden death happens in less than 5% of older adults. So the majority of people um, die very slowly over time of chronic illness. Um, most people, you know, most people would like to know how they're going to die. Uh, some do, some don't. Um, there are some people who think they know how they're going to die, and then lo and behold, something else happens. Um, very often people want to die quickly for a lot of reasons. Um, usually that's pretty painless. Um, usually it means you don't sit around and cry with your family for days. There are other people who don't want to do that because they want time with their family. So everybody kind of has their own definition of, of death. And I will guarantee you, it never happens the way people expect, never. I mean, this morning I was sitting with a woman who's 81 she uh, moved into our community last June. 
She seemed relatively healthy. She got very sick with a pulmonary embolism, which, you know, we couldn't really figure out why that happened. Um, and then she respiratorily got into big trouble about three months ago. And when we did uh, CT scans again after her pulmonary embolism and chest x-rays and pulmonary function tests, it looked like she had severe COPD with bronchiectasis. You know, so over the last two weeks, she's spent a great deal of the time not being able to breathe. Um, there have been a variety of things that have been done, you know, prednisone tapers and antibiotics and uh, all kinds of inhalers and all kinds of, like, uh, mucamus to try to liquefy secretions, make her more comfortable. She got into real trouble yesterday and basically said, I'm done. I don't want you to bring me back to fight this battle again. So she's in the process of, you know, we're moving through making her comfortable. She was actually alert and aware this morning, enough to say yesterday was horrible. I don't want to do that again. Um, so we're working with her to provide her with a good death. She's not going to eat and drink anymore. We're going to provide her with a lot of morphine to keep her comfortable. And her lung disease is so bad, I don't think she's going to be with us in five days. But she's made a choice to shorten her life because she doesn't want to do this anymore. Um, there are other people who make the choice to um, keep going and keep going and keep going. <laughs> there, there's a gentleman we met with, he and his family on Monday. He's demented. He's had terrible problems with heart disease. He, he's wanted all kinds of aggressive treatment until now. And in his demented state on Monday, he basically says, I can't make the decisions anymore. It's up to my kids. I'm abdicating. And he said, I think it's time for me to go. You know, so you, you never know, and you, you never, you can't even discount people who are demented as not being able to tell you what they want. Um, there's something deep down inside that's so emotional about dying. People find a way to communicate that. Um, so what we understand is um, good death is different for each person. Um, it's important. I always say there is no way you can provide appropriate palliative care or end-of-life care if you do not recognize somebody is dying and say so. Because you can't even begin to have the conversation. Um, you know, you have to really look at somebody and say, I don't think you're going to be alive in two months. We need to talk about how the next two months is going to go. And sometimes you're dead wrong. You know, I've been many times. You know, oh, you got two months, and two years later, I'm still looking at them. But, you know, at least we've had lots of talks about how they want to die. So let's talk about um, where people die. This lovely little colored map shows concentrations of proportions of deaths occurring at home. And the very darkest color is large numbers, and the very lightest colors are not many. So interesting. And starting with 89, 97, to 2001. What do you notice right away? More people are dying either, more people are dying at home, yeah. And pretty much 
universally across the country except for a couple of really rural areas, and I have my own guesses about why that is true. We know in New Hampshire in 1989, 13 to 17% of people died at home. In 1997, it was 17 to 21%. And in 2001, it was 21 to 26%. So a little bit of improvement, a little bit of improvement. Then these are the uh, nursing home deaths. And again, dark colors, most people, lighter colors. So what we're seeing is there are certain areas of the country where the people really die in nursing homes. Um, in 1989 in New Hampshire, 24 to 27% died in nursing homes, and that percentage has stayed static. But what's notice, uh, noted is the people who are dying in nursing homes are much older and much more ill. So that, you know, that's the demographic that's changing. And then proportion of deaths occurring in the hospital. So we're actually seeing a shift there, out of the hospital, which is a good thing. And again, in New Hampshire, um, 49 to 56% of people in 1989 died in the hospital. 1997, it was essentially unchanged. And it dropped a little bit in 2001 to 42 to 49%. But still, over half of the people who died died in a place they would prefer not to be, and it wasn't even their second choice. So being in the hospital was not their first choice and not even their second choice. So when, when you're thinking about a good death and you think about it occurring suddenly, we, talk, we talked about this already, quick or drawn out, a lot of times if it happens quickly, there isn't an opportunity for people to end up in the hospital. You know, they're gone. But people who um, have heart disease go into heart failure, people who have COPD, who uh, get into respiratory problems. I mean, we are fortunate in that we could keep this lady with us. I mean, we don't, she doesn't want to go to the hospital. We know we can take care of her and not send her. But we know there are not always those facilities available to people. So a lot of times when people begin to have a really life-threatening chronic illness deteriorate to the point that they need more care, it's movement into the hospital. And then if they survive in the hospital, then it's movement usually out to a nursing home for their palliative care. Or if they're lucky, movement home if they've got family members who can be with them and basically provide nursing care. Because a lot of the... A big part of the equation of um, end-of-life care is having somebody who can provide personal care for you. And there are lots of people who don't have individuals who can do that. Or they may have family members, but those family members feel really unable to do that. Or the person who's dying doesn't want their daughter and son to provide that kind of care for them. Or their husband. They want, you know, they want somebody else to do it. Um, and unfortunately, in rural environments, um, where there are so <clears throat> few people per square mile, uh, financial resources for hospice are limited. Um, I grew up in um, 
southern Connecticut, right outside of New Haven. And one of the first large inpatient hospices was in Brantford, which was 10 miles from where I lived. Um, it was 40-bed hospice. It was built when I was barely out of nursing school in the 70s. And the, that uh, hospice was built in a way that whole families could move into the hospice when somebody was dying so that the person who was dying could be provided with the nursing care. And the family could be there with them all the time. They'd eat meals together. They'd sleep together. You know, they'd be together until that person died. So it kind of provided a pseudo home for them. It also provided a place for people who didn't have family um, and didn't want to uh, um, die in a hospital. And that was the early part of hospice benefits, so they could use it for an inpatient stay. There are some of the smaller hospitals, and one of the hospitals where you are may be one of them, where they have one or two rooms dedicated to hospice care. I know Manuscutney, in Escutney, Vermont, has a beautiful hospice suite. It's only one. Um, I think they're thinking of a second one now. But it's, again, where a family can move in and stay while somebody is dying. Um, but a lot of the problem, it, and in those larger hospices, they also have um, nursing assistants, home health assistants, who can go out and go into the home for five and six hours a day, seven days a week, to provide personal care, meals, so that, say, a son or a daughter can continue to work part-time for a while. Um, you know, maybe they can spot together some coverage and manage to keep their family member at home while they have somebody coming in to do the personal care. You get up here where we are, none of the hospices up here have that, those kind of resources. Um, the, they, they have nurses, wonderful nurses, who are willing to go out and make house calls very frequently, but that, you know, person, that home health aide who can go in and provide the personal care is often the missing piece. So the where then becomes defined by what people need and where, you know, where it can happen. And sometimes it's not always their first choice. There was a support study done in 1995, which is now how old? <laughs> 20 years old. It's amazing to think about how time flies. And it was a study done to understand prognosis and preferences for outcomes and risks of treatments. And basically, they wanted to look at how people understood their diagnoses, their prognosis, and how then they planned, and really how they planned for dying. It was a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation study. Huge amount of dollars put into this. It was a multi-medical center um, study. There were 10,000 patients in five hospitals. One of them was here. And the goal was to try to improve the quality of end-of-life care for people with serious illness. Um, and the intervention was to provide appropriate prognosis and try to enhance communication about what options were available to people. And actually, the support study here was kind of the harbinger of the development of the palliative care program here, because what they found out was not a very happy thing. Um, the findings, and here they are, as horrible as you would like them, 46% of DNR orders were written within two days of death, not before. 47% of physicians knew that their patients wanted to avoid CPR, but not always brought it up with the patients. 
38% of patients spent 10 plus days in ICU before they die. 50% of dying patients suffered severe pain. That just makes me want to sit here and cry. Um, there was a high hospital resource use, yet 50% of people were in pain. And these numbers were not changed when patients were made aware of their prognosis. So what is the problem? So what came out of this? Well, we better, we better get better at describing kind of how chronic illness leads to end of life. And we need to have those conversations sooner. We have to have better prognostic tools for non-traumatic types of comas that happen. Um, we need to be comfortable talking about end of life and communicating about it and figuring out what it is that people want. Um, and we need to move away from this kind of stuff that never did anybody any good. I don't think they even use Swanagans catheters anymore. I don't think. They, they use them rarely. Yeah. I hope I never ever see one again. Um, turn away from this and really turn away to, you know, having dialogue with people about what what is a trajectory of chronic illness? What does it look like at the end of your life when you have a chronic illness? And then how would you like to have that play out? Where would you like to have that play out? You know, have some control, as many of you said, over what happens and when. So palliative care really kind of came online as people began to think about the whole idea of aging population the huge proliferation of chronic illness. We know that most, uh, most people over age 65 have at least five chronic illnesses. And by the time they're 75, they have as many as nine or 10. Now, these are things like, they can start with arthritis and hearing and vision problems, but then you go to things like hypertension and heart disease and diabetes and um, lung disease and uh, you know, neurologic disorders, strokes. So we know that chronic illness accumulates. So this is a discussion that really should start happening with people as they, you know, enter into their older years in terms of, okay, you have these chronic illnesses. So some of these could potentially cause trouble down the road. When they cause trouble, what do you want to do? Um, I think I've told all of you I've been doing what I've been doing for 20 years, and so we have 70-year-olds who move in, and we start having this dialogue with them when they're still healthy in their 70s. And you know what? We can help them make reasonable choices. It's one of the reasons we don't have people who are hospitalized a lot. We have people who say when their quality of life is not to their satisfaction anymore, I don't want to do this anymore. I need to talk to you about what my choices are. Um, and they choose various things. Sometimes they, and some, and it's so random. I mean, different people have different thresholds for quality of life. And do I, you know, when we talk about ethics, we're going to talk about the right to self-determination. I think it is everybody's right to say, you know, this may be quality of life for you, but it's not quality of life for me. And I don't have any 
ability to enforce my feeling about quality of life on anybody else. If they tell me their life stinks, I need to believe them. And unless I believe they're majorly ill with major depression, and then I need to say to them, so let's treat your depression first, and if you still think life stinks, then we'll do something about it. But that's hard conversation to have with people, and it takes time. And it takes long-term relationships, and I think the problem is with our healthcare system, it doesn't happen much. Uh, how many of you have, you have had a primary care provider that you've had for more than five years? How many people have had a primary care? How many people don't have a primary care provider? Okay, <laughs> fix that. How many people? <laughs> how many people have had a primary care provider they've had for ten years? Fifteen. 20, 25 years. I did, but I had to move. 20, yeah, yeah. So you know the biggest problem with my primary care provider who's been my, she's the same age as I am. <laughs> she's going to retire. You know, we've had all these discussions, but what good is that going to do? i got to start all over again. So, so, you know, there are some problems inherent in the system. So, as I said to my children, so it's really important that I talk to you about what I want and don't want because I may not have a healthcare provider around to advocate for me. And if I can't advocate for myself, I want you to do that for me. So, you know, that needs to happen. So, the underpinnings of palliative care is usually there's an interdisciplinary team or uh, what was the one we were talking about? Uh, uh, something professional team, anyway. Um, it's a group of professionals. It's usually whoever the medical provider is, you know, so a physician or a nurse practitioner, usually a social worker, usually some kind of rehab folks, um, often a chaplain like Jamie is involved, um, and nursing, so that you have kind of the full spectrum of people who could assist in providing help with palliative care. Um, often it's palliative care is offered simultaneous with care that's really being directed toward either managing symptoms or even trying to cure a problem. Like people can have lung cancer and be having radiation treatment to try to obliterate the lung cancer and still be receiving palliative care. So there's an overlap. And the issue is, so if the problem can't be cured and the person then ends up needing, or, or the cure leaves them with some amount of disability, which often happens, then the palliative care team is there to really work with the patient and the family. Um, many of you probably are familiar with the idea of you have the curative or life-performing treatment and then the gate comes down and you have palliative care. Very old thinking. Now we look at um, diagnosis happening and there being this kind of integration of curative treatment, pain relief, and palliative care. And with chronic illness, this is the only way it works. Because we aren't going to make arthritis go away. We aren't going to make heart disease go away. We aren't going to make lung disease go away. Certainly not Parkinson's disease, strokes, a lot of the things that people accumulate. 
We can certainly do things to try to maintain people in stable states, but we also need to make sure at the same time we're making provisos for them to functionally continue in as little pain as possible. I'm not going to say pain-free because sometimes that's not possible. And you know what? A lot of times patients don't even expect that. They just want the... I've had people say, if you can make my pain a two or a three, I'll be happy. That's not unreasonable. You can do that. So what do they need? They need assistance uh, with continuity and coordination of care that can respond to episodes where they're not doing well and then the long-term consequences of their chronic illness. There needs to be some way to transition people back and forth um, you know, if they have an exacerbation of their heart disease and they're briefly in the hospital and then they end up in a nursing home, how can they be transitioned to get back home? Or maybe even, and the, um, the uh, elder care program that's been on the medical unit here really looks at trying to maintain functional ability even while people are ill so that they can not even have to go to the nursing home. They can maybe go straight back home again as long as they've got somebody there. And yes? Is there, is there a, um, like a person that helps the family go through all this, like helps them decide whether they want to um, fight or do palliative care or how they how they make the decisions, you know, like if someone does have cancer and there's an option to either try and fight it or deal with the symptoms and die, is there is there someone like a therapist or a or someone that helps them deal with that? So usually when people get a new diagnosis that's a bad diagnosis, whether it's a cancer diagnosis or like a bad pulmonary diagnosis. Um, specialists are getting a little more uh, zen with the idea of asking people if they'd like a palliative care consultation. You know, it's still, and they let them know that the palliative care consultation is to explore what other options are available to them. So that say um, somebody has a new diagnosis of lung cancer. Well, actually, how about, well, that's a beauty. Um, so let's say pancreatic cancer. And so the, the, um, the surgeon and the oncologist say, you know, these are the treatments we can offer you. Um, and they're just amazingly devastating treatments. Things like radiation and heavy chemo and um, radical surgery. Um, or, you know, we can talk to you about palliative care. We can do a palliative care consult. So the, usually the person who has received a new fairly serious diagnosis is asked about this. Um, the majority of, the, of my patients I know say, yes, they would like to meet with these people. And it's either a physician or a nurse practitioner who works on the palliative care service who really sits down with them and goes over the options for more aggressive treatment and the options for palliative treatment. Things like palliative chemo and palliative radiation and palliative surgery versus 
um, treatment directed toward a cure. And when you've got somebody who's maybe 87, maybe even 77, um, maybe even 67, they may have some real thoughts about whether they want they would want to go aggressively. So that less and less, and I think a lot of this um, is driven in the specialties by the research looking at what happens when you don't do those really aggressive treatments to people and kind of how long they live and what their quality of life is like. Um, and people also want to choose. There are some people who just, even if they um, even if they know that if they have aggressive chemo, they have aggressive radiation, they have, um, with pancreatic surgery, somebody something called Whipple surgery, where basically they take all your innards out, um, that, you know, their chance of survival is, you know, we've had some people who've done very well with that, amazingly, but then there are people who do not ver do very well with it. Maybe, maybe they get five years. But when they're going through the chemo and the radiation and they have that surgery, they may have six or eight months out of their life that are just blotso. Um, so there's really, at least in our environment, there's a combination of the specialists who would provide that very aggressive care and the palliative team that would, provide, that would talk with them about other options. They're both available. So it's, um, it's not a therapist. It's, although the palliative care team has a social worker, has a chaplain, um, they have nurses, um, and everybody gets involved uh, when people are trying to make a choice. So it's, it, again, it's a very interdisciplinary approach. And very often what happens is the palliative care team and whoever the specialists are end up working together with that patient to figure out what's best. Um, there is an 87-year-old woman just found out she had uh, cancer in her ureter of her kidney, but it was metastasized everywhere. So she heard what, I mean, she really didn't have options. She had a stent put in her ureter, um, so that, but she's having a lot of pain. And even with palliative um, uh, treatment, which would be, you know, radiation, she probably only has three months. So she really elected to just really go straight palliation. But it's, you know, everybody's talking about it. The specialist, the palliative care team met with her. We're talking with her about it, and actually we're supporting her now. Um, so it can be, it can be, a, it's a team approach. But philosophically, people have to wrap their head around that there are other options than always being aggressive. And, and it has to be around everything. Um, I think the heart failure team has a wonderful relationship with the palliative care team here. The pulmonology group, more and more of the specialty groups are developing relationships with the palliative care team because they know they need each other. They really need each other to care for people properly. So it can come from anybody. So we talked a little bit about quality of life, and there are many spheres of quality of life. There's physical well-being, psychological well-being, social well-being, and spiritual well-being. Usually when people think about whether they have a decent quality of life or not, they identify things in these areas. You know, the, uh, 
the woman who I was telling you about who has this severe COPD, she just hates feeling helpless and tired and like she, you know, somebody has to take care of her. And she really recognizes that her husband, who's six years older than she is, can't do it. Um, and she just, you know, this is never anything she wanted, was to become help, helpless and dependent on others. I heard a number of you saying that was not what you wanted either. You didn't want people to have to care for you. You didn't want to be dependent. So that's a huge part of quality of life for people. So these are little trajectories of, you know, how dying happens. Um, you know, you're healthy, you're healthy, you're healthy, and then you have chronic illness, and then there's this little sliver where you really get sick and die. So up at the top, the top graph is cancer, where usually people do very well for a long period of time, and then they go um, Heart and lung disease, that's the one that looks like this. And boy, it truly is. Um, and then usually there's some event, and often it's people just saying, I've had enough. Mm -hmm. um, and then frailty and dementia, and look at how flat that one is. Um, what we know about dementia and frailty is people can live in very compromised states for sometimes 10 to 15 years. Um, we have some patients on our dementia in our uh, health center who've been you know, in the care of our nursing staff <coughs> for over 12 years. And, you know, they don't know where they are. They don't know their family members anymore. Um, and, you know, you look at them and you say, hmm, wonder what's going to take them away, and then one day something happens. Um, but a lot of them don't have a lot of other chronic illness. They just, they have their dementia. Um, hospice is a very specific philosophy of care. Um, it's performed in many locations. It can happen in the home. It can happen in the nursing home. It can happen in assisted living. Um, it defines certain services that were defined long ago when hospice was developed in England. Um, their major goals are to stop suffering and improve quality of life at the end of uh, quality of life at the end of life. So they do all kinds of things to try to make that happen. Um, I have a very good friend who was a hospice nurse in Utah and then came here and was a hospice nurse here. Love the work, but it's so intense. And everybody you take care of dies. And she finally decided after 10 years she couldn't do it anymore. Um, so these are tremendously, people who do hospice care are tremendously committed to what they're doing. Um, they go in and they work with families, and just like each one of you described a good death being something else, each family and patient, you know, it's different. It's different. And so they roll with all of these different folks. So palliative care is the bigger scope. Hospice is that very specific care when end of life is within sight. One of the big problems with hospice care when it first became available to Medicare patients, is there were a lot of physicians. You had A physician had to document that they believed somebody was going to die in six months. Remember how heart disease and lung disease look? Yeah. So there were a lot of physicians who felt very uncomfortable 
signing somebody up for hospice because, I don't know, they felt the Medicare police were going to come out and get them if they didn't die. Um, and I think some of it was how the language was in the, in the legislation that created the Medicare hospice benefit. It has been liberalized now, so we don't see a lot of that happening. Also, there are a lot of people who get signed up for hospice, and because they have a chronic illness, they're signed up, they look for everything in the world like they're going to die, and six months later, they get better. So you discontinue the benefit. We had, we had a lady who had multiple myeloma. It was diagnosed easily 12 years ago. Back pain, it looked very aggressive. She didn't want any chemo. I think she took palliative chemo, you know, some kind of tablet. Um, you know, she, she hired a companion who could help she and her husband. We signed her up for hospice care. She, she got a lot sicker, even with the help. She couldn't stay at home. We brought her into the health center. I don't know where that myeloma went. She died three months ago of heart failure. <laughs> so again, the problem with hospice care is, you know, how do you know when somebody's really dying? <laughs> Sometimes you don't. Um, but they've become a lot more flexible in terms of thinking about Medicare benefit with this. We, you know, we took this lady off of the Medicare benefit long ago, and by the time we realized she was dying again, you know, she was our patient, she was in the health center, and so we just took care of her. Um, so palliative care is really the huge kind of encircling issue. And in older adults with the multitudes of chronic illness and disability, most of us are doing palliative care. I mean, most of us are. Um, we're trying to relieve suffering and help people uh, function to the best of their ability and have some quality of life that they feel is acceptable. And I think that's what a lot of us do every day. So we have to recognize that we're really practicing palliative care and hippopore we are. Um, so again, there's the eligibility criteria um, that palliation is the goal rather than curative. Um, and the physician is willing to be the physician of record. Although most hospice agencies have a physician who is able to take over the care if the primary care provider is unable to do so. Um, and hospice can't use a DNR status as criteria. I mean, I have lots of patients who are healthy as a horse, but they don't want to be resuscitated. So that's not the trigger. Um, required services must be available. Um, the skilled nursing service is always available. There must be a physician, a medical director, who may or may not be the primary physician for that patient. Home health aid service, um, sometimes is available for bathing, dressing, and feeding. Um, psychological counseling, usually um, a social worker and usually chaplaincy are available to the patient and family. There's a lot of spiritual support. A hospice does a wonderful job of bereavement care. You know, after a patient has died, staying in touch with the family for a year or more if they feel the family needs it to really help the family get past 
this death. There are volunteers who volunteer to go be with patients in their homes so that family members can have breaks. Um, a lot of the folks who live at Kendall are, are hospice volunteers and do that. Um, inpatient care for short periods of time uh, to try to say somebody's pain gets completely out of control. Maybe uh, an admission to the hospital um, to put in some kind of an IV line or, you know, to try to get ahead of the pain and then develop a pain management strategy so they can go back home again. So they can, they, if they are on hospice, they can go to the hospital if, if it's necessary. For some reason they have like an, like an exacerbation where they just, is not being controlled at home. Right. They get, they get into trouble at home and it's just the hospice medical director and nurse feel they can't manage it and they feel that yeah and the goal of the patient and the family is involved in you know they want to still go to the hospital to to for whatever benefit it can have they can is they there can. A, are there like requirements for that or a certain like the stay or i believe it there has to be a very specific reason you're doing it Usually it's because of um, pain management. It's because the, with the methods they have available, like oral rocks and all, and subcutaneous pumps, somehow the pain has just gotten way ahead. And so what they of, often do is bring them into the hospital, sometimes put in a, a central line so they can get intravenous pain medicine at home. But so so it'll be, a, you know, sometimes it's no more than a trip to the emergency room. Right. So what if they have on, like, say if they're dying from a severe COPD or, mm -hmm. or lung cancer and they um, just have a really bad day where they can't seem to get their respiratory distress under control, does that, how does that work? So if... The family and the patient are working very closely with a hospice person or a palliative care person. There's usually a very quick acceleration of a variety of medications to manage that. That usually doesn't precipitate a hospitalization um, unless those resources aren't available. Um, or um, I think unless the resources aren't available because for the most part, end-stage heart disease and COPD, um, either using morphine or Dilaudid and just using enough of it can take care of that. Can take care of that. I mean, I, I to this day have not found a person with end-stage heart disease or COPD that we couldn't manage with just plenty of morphine. I mean, it gets scary how much. I mean, I've had nurses look at me and say, I don't want to give that to them. And I've had to do it myself, but um, you, it works. You know, you just can't be timid. Um, and I think the reason sometimes people end up in the hospital is either the hospice nurse or the family member, whoever it is, just is terrified of, by the amount of drug they need to give the person to get the symptoms under. So if that happens, does that disqualify them for hospice if no. they no. have to come in? If it's for symptom management, it's if it's the relief of suffering, no, it doesn't disqualify them, not at all. 
Um, and that's usually the reason people end up in the hospital is symptom management. Um, it's either pain or it's nausea and vomiting. Because yeah, I, I have just I've heard like different stories where they you know people have said wait I can't go to the hospital because then I lose hospice because that's not really the point of hospice. <laughs> so. so if they go to the hospital without being in touch with the hospice team, mm -hmm. that could be true. You know, if they pull the panic button and call 911 yeah. um, without allowing the hospice okay. team to try to intervene, that could be true. But I, I doubt it would be that arbitrary. Um, I mean, if somebody's really afraid like that, I don't think anybody's going to hold it against them. And it's, you know, I'm sure many of you have seen somebody go into flesh pulmonary edema. How frightening is that? Can you imagine being a spouse home with a, or a child home with a parent and having that happen? I'd be calling 911. Um, and, you know, they'd go to the emergency room and they'd get a lot of Lasix and a lot of morphine and they'd be okay again. And probably could go home. Um, but, yeah, those are, there are those times when I think, you know, or somebody's vomiting uncontrollably. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there are times it happens and it's usually when symptom management just, you know, gets out of control. But I have never heard of anybody being disconnected for that reason. So does Dartmouth here have any hospice beds? We do not currently. So they can't be admitted here? They're no. No. What usually ends up happening is they get admitted to one of the acute units, but their care is managed by the palliative care team. So the palliative care team becomes in charge of their care and does whatever is needed to get them back if they want to go back. Or if they're like, you know, the two folks here who said they'd rather die in the hospital, sometimes they manage their care and they stay in the hospital. It's cool here because they have, um, they put a sign on the door and it doesn't say like CMO or, you know, um, it's a flower with a yeah. pillow that's yeah. going off. Yeah. And that's sort of the universal symbol of don't go in here and be obnoxious. And, yeah. You know. <laughs> be nice. Somebody's dying behind yes. this flower. Yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. Also, there is respite care in hospice for when the family members get burned out. Mm -hmm. um, people can be hospitalized for short periods of time to give their family a break. Um, there is 24-7 call for a nurse but there's not 24-hour custodial care. So that custodial care has to be available through family or friends. And that sometimes is really where it becomes very difficult. Very difficult. Okay, signs of impending death. We all usually know what it looks like when somebody's going to die. Sometimes we're taken by surprise. But for the, for the most part, you know, you can look at somebody and say, hmm, ah. Um, it's important to communicate very clearly with the family. Um, you know, to talk to them about what you think is happening. Um, the gentleman of this poor woman who has COPD is panic-stricken because his wife has taken care of him for 62 years. Um, and when we talked to him about the fact that we thought she was dying and we, she'd made it very clear to us that she didn't want us to interfere. Um, you know, that was, that was really, really difficult for him. Then you need to listen to the family and listen to what's going on with them. Um, he said, well, 
you know, can't you make her better? Doesn't she have pneumonia? You know, maybe if you gave her some more of this or that, maybe if you gave her more prednisone. Um, you know, he's panicking because he just doesn't want to lose it. <coughs> um, and then continue to talk with the family uh, and figure out how this is going to be a situation that they can tolerate because it's probably going to happen whether, whether or not anybody's ready for it. Um, we know that as the end comes, there's big changes in, uh, in blood perfusion. Uh, people usually kind of slip into a coma. Um, their cardiac output is reduced so that usually, you know, the brain and the heart and the lungs and the guts still get the blood, but not the hands and the feet, so they're modeled. Um, and they really just kind of very slowly shut down. Delirium uh, happens, not in everybody, but in a number of people. Um, we, there's another lady who's dying, who's 92, who's been very demented for a long time. And just before I left, she was yelling and screaming and seeing things on the wall. And, you know, I don't think she's going to live through the, through the day, but she was completely terrified. Um, and terminal delirium is awful. Uh, and it's usually when, you know, the body is just pretty overwhelmed by what's happening. Um, so, you know, we, Haldol is used for terminal delirium um, to sedate people so they don't have to suffer. Uh, and it works very, very well. Very well. But agitated delirium at the end of life, not uncommon. Horrifying, but not uncommon. Um, is that what they refer to as terminal restlessness? Yeah, and beyond. And like a, they, there was another word they used for it. Yeah. Usually when people are delirious, there's a lot of yelling and hollering going on, as well as thrashing. Um, a lot of times the restlessness, muscular restlessness, can be handled with um, some Ativan. That's, right. uh, you know, an Ativan tablet dissolved under the tongue. But when it's terminal delirium, it really requires something much more sedating like Haldol. So have you found that's all been successful? Have you, mm -hmm. yeah? Yeah. So they, they, they eventually do find some kind of equilibrium, I guess? Yeah. Very often what we find is um, we have to schedule medications to make sure that once we get control of the symptoms, the symptoms are controlled. So it's usually the combination of some kind of pain medicine. If it's, we, a lot of um, oral roxanol that just can be rubbed in the mouth and absorbed through the buccal membrane. Um, fentanyl patches are wonderful. Uh, um, Ativan just dissolved and put under the tongue. Tylenol suppositories if they develop a fever. Um, but yes, you, the only way you can give it is IM or IV. So you have to give it intramuscularly, which is the downside of it. But usually uh, in, in an older adult, one or two milligrams, and the person is much calmer. Now, three months ago, we had a gentleman who, oh, it was awful. He was... Um, we're not exactly sure what happened to him, but he became, uh, he was hospitalized with pneumonia and developed heart failure. 
and he like never came back. He'd been kind of moderate dementia, and he just went twirling down into a much more debilitated state, and he was completely just screaming, yelling, hollering, you know, kill me, kill me, don't let me hurt the children. I mean, it just went on and on. Um, and, you know, it was, again, like sitting with somebody and giving them morphine when they can't breathe. We just sat there and we gave him Haldol for a while. And then um, Zyprexa comes in a dissolvable Zytus. So we started giving him, you know, a Zyprexa Zytus um, with the Haldol. Um, but, you know, you have to address the symptom that's before you. And for him, it was one of the most extraordinary cases of terminal delirium I'd seen. Um, you know, Ativan wasn't going to touch that. But um, the combination of the Haldol and the Zyprexazitis, he, you know, he didn't last two days, but he was very peaceful in the end. So it's identifying kind of what the problem is and then treating it accordingly. Even as people are dying, there are things like constipation, diarrhea that need to be attended to. Nausea and vomiting, again, is a huge issue. Um, things like compazine, phenergan, more sedating, sometimes also not terribly helpful, and then you get into things like Zofran. We expect diminished urinary output. We expect people to dehydrate. Um, we expect people to not be interested in food and fluids and really slow down their eating, have weight loss, uh, not want to eat, have swallowing problems. Um, we get into things like comfort feeding, where if the person wants to eat, they can, but if they don't, that's okay, too. lady with the COPD was telling us this morning, she was awake enough to talk with us um, after being given a lot of medicine yesterday when she couldn't breathe. She said, oh, you know, two bites of toast and I'm good. And I said, then two bites of toast and you're good. That's all you need. Um, you know, sips and bites is often what it is at the end of life. Um, I think the hardest thing for families that, that we have to prepare people for is those nasopharyngeal secretions that just make people rattle at the end of their life. Um, I sat with my mother at the end of her life. I even knew about it. Let me tell you, it about drove me out of my mind. Um, you just, you know, and you can use anticholinergics. They, I don't think they really help much, I'm just saying. <laughs> Whether it's a scopolamine patch or atropine eye drops, um, they still rattle. And so I always tell families that, you know, th they're not suffering. They're not feeling this. Um, they usually don't look in any distress when it's happening. It's harder for us to listen to it than it is, you know, hopefully by the point in time that this is happening, they are so well sedated and comfortable that this is not going to mean anything to them. And it usually doesn't. I mean, you can stand there with them and see that they're not in distress. But it is just terrible. There are rare occasions, um, sometimes when people uh, have had heart failure, that we use a little just oral suction if there seems to be a lot of secretions in their mouth. But suctioning does nothing um, for those secretions. They're just in places we can't get to, and they're, they're going to rattle no matter what we do. Um, shortness of breath is not OK. I always tell nurses if a patient has a respiratory rate over 24, they're in respiratory distress. I don't care what you say beyond that. 
if their respiratory rate is over 24, they need more drug. Um, tachycardia is also a good indicator if people are very tachycardic. Uh, it's usually because they're short of breath, so that if you treat the shortness of breath, the, the heart rate goes down. The one exception to that is usually within about 12 hours of death, heart rate really picks up. Um, you can tell the person isn't in any distress, but you can feel just this thready, fast pulse. And that's usually another indicator that, you know, the person's, you know, really going to die fairly soon. And then, of course, chain stokes respirations. I have family members who go in and they'll say, he hasn't breathed in 40 seconds. And then all of a sudden there's a, and everybody jumps out of their skin. Um, so need to prepare people for that, that there are long periods of time they won't breathe, and then they'll take a gasping respiration. And finally, at some point, they don't breathe again. Um, we heard about, through the support study about unrelieved pain. It's important to not only, when people can't tell you anymore, to look at them, to look for restlessness, I often, ex you know, if I see somebody who's restless, that to me says they're not comfortable. Um, the other thing I think that we have to pay attention to as nurses when people are being given end-of-life care is if medications are ordered today, by tomorrow it may not be enough. By tonight it may not be enough. Um, it, it may not be enough just because the body is building up tolerance, but also as they die, the symptoms become more dramatic and we need to ramp up our care to properly manage them. So nobody should die in pain and suffering. Um, often I say to families, I educate them about everything that can happen, and I say, so let me, you're, you're Fred's wife. If you're with Fred and you think he's uncomfortable, you come out and tell the nurse he needs a PRN because you're going to be the barometer. Um, and that's as good as anything. You know, if the family member is uncomfortable, that patient needs to be um, appropriately medicated. Brenda, are you using subcutaneous um, pumps at all for pain medication? We, um, we use subcutaneous pumps. We also use the little subcutaneous buttons. Mm -hmm. We have people who sometimes a little too restless in that... Um, that pump gets in the way. Also, families, uh, you know, they get a little strange about the pump. They don't, you know, they don't want to, like, touch the patient. We have, you know, we have kids and spouses who will crawl right into bed with the patients. And sometimes having a pump there is kind of a real bummer. So we put those little sub-cube buttons in. But a lot of times we use Roxanol right up until the point they're gone. You know, just keep rubbing it in their mouth. Unless we feel it's not working anymore. If we feel it's not working anymore, if the absorption somehow isn't adequate, then we'll put a little subcute button in. And usually there's enough, you know, meat in the thigh um, that we can do that. And it's perfect because the person doesn't feel anything. Um, you're using small amounts of very concentrated medicine. And what we do is we just move the button every 24 hours, just like you'd move a subcute pump. But it... It seems to have less of a kind of a noxious effect on the families. The buttons do. Uh, we, we found that out a couple of years ago, and so we've been using less of the pumps and more of the buttons. Do you so, have a hospice room at 
Chicago? All of those are hospice rooms. Oh, really? Yeah. Basically, if a person has lived in that room, we take care of them. This is at the health center? Yep. Okay. So it's, whether it's an assisted living, we have all assisted living beds except for five skilled nursing beds. And I don't think we've had anybody die in the five skilled nursing beds, but you know, usually if we know their death is coming quickly, we don't move them around. We try to keep them where they're comfortable. If we have to move them, we try to move their stuff so they feel like they're still at home. But yeah, I, in our health center, we have about 100 beds. They're all hospice beds as far as I'm concerned. Wow. Yeah. Well, when you have 35 to 50 people who die a year, it, it better be wherever they are. Yeah. We, we've taken care of people in their apartments when they've had family who could be with them. Um, so it's wherever they are. Yes? What should I tell her? We have a, what should I call her, a superior manager or something like that, who really speaks for the cat fund. You gotta offer, you gotta talk to the dog and get a cat fund, get a cat yeah. fund. We have to yeah. offer that. Yeah. It's like, you know, kind of, we have the 20 milligrams of milliliter morphine, and yeah. a couple of drops. What can I tell her? Just like, why is that necessarily so, better? So the, for somebody who's saying, I mean, not walking around, not. No, just really, we have, we're talking maybe a couple of days. So hospice philosophy is less invasive, the better. Cat pumps are invasive. You know, we try not, yeah. She's going to say, okay, but now we're cutting down. We have nurses running in there every two, uh, every half so, hour, every two hours. So it's now, you've, now you see the problem. It's not about patient care. Well, that's what I say, but not what she says. Yeah. I feel like it's almost better. That the nurse goes in there often. Yeah, the so, do and so do I. So do I. Just to give them the support. Yeah. yeah. But that's what nursing. <laughs> okay, more. <laughs> more. <laughs> Let, have some the art of nursing is frequent interaction with patients and family. If you're not going in there to give medications, you are not practicing the art of or nursing. And if you don't even have to give medication, just going in there and yeah. saying, "Do you need yeah. anything? Can I get you yeah. some water? Can I do something?" Okay. She will also say that if we go in there every half hour, every hour, and give that we're not managing that pain. So, so, so here's the other part of it is if you're having to go in that often, then morphine or Dilaudid lasts for about three hours. What has to happen is the, the amount of that dose has to become larger, quicker. <clears throat> um, we have lots of people who die and they die still on their Q3 hour, but they may be getting a wallop every three hours, mm -hmm. um, and and the every and the every thirty minutes not needed until maybe the last thirty minutes of their life. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm saying is you've got to have somebody there who's saying, "Hey, five milligrams every three hours isn't working. We need to take it up to eight, and we need to do it now." The ER docs that mm -hmm. we have are not really because mostly by the time. I, and I don't know why this is, but mostly by the time the patient is dying enough and they're on their restless, um, it usually happens on my shift, um, unfortunately. Of course it does. <laughs> but, and, and I oftentimes, you know, we either haven't been watching the pain increase enough or people are not making it a point to get aware of it. So by the time we call the ER docs, they're like, what? You want what? You know, and they're not really interested in giving you that big of a dose. Yeah, one of the things, accelerated pain. Yeah. Like I said, I've stood there with a, a vial of morphine and a syringe and just kept giving people morphine until they're calm. 
when you have rapidly accelerating respiratory distress or pain, yeah. you can be given 20 and 30 milligrams of and morphine in the but, space of 30 minutes. Yeah, but they're, they're reluctant to give us that. that you need a order. really good palliative care advanced practice nurse is what you need. Yeah, we do. We do. <laughs> and, and usually, like, the hospice, you know, the, there are very few patients, I would say, that we have that are even on hospice because a lot of the families and the patients are not really, they think that doing hospice is accepting death. They think that it's... So the statistic, remember the statistic I gave you about two days before death, DNR? Yeah. Most people are signed up for hospice within 48 hours of when they die. Yeah, yeah. which is unfortunate. So, yeah. yeah, which is really unfortunate. Because they are willing to give us those big doses yeah. of morphine. If they're on hospice. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, yeah. hey. Hey, give them as much as they want. Yeah. <laughs> but know? it's like I said, you can't give good palliative care if you don't recognize somebody's dying. That's the first thing that has to happen. And maybe it's those, you know, you all who have to say, hey, this person is dying. Let's do something about maybe it. Maybe your initial they, order should have a titrate while you can go up to as far as this. No, we can't do that. They won't yeah. allow us to. No, not, not in a nursing home. In a hospital, they can. We can't. That was a huge transition I had to make when mm -hmm. I moved from acute care to, to long-term care, yeah. is there's no... No judgment. It's like black or white. Which so what I end up doing is writing huge doses of morphine and then say that they can give smaller doses every fifteen minutes. Yeah, the most recent one was every. Um, I could give her two milligrams of morphine every half hour. Yeah, wow. yeah. I was like, awesome. It's gonna be a good night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When, I, when I worked hospice, we actually had a patient on a cat pump at home with Versic. He yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. Pain, and he promised a friend who was traveling abroad that he would be home when he got there. Of course, he didn't tell any of his family that he was waiting for this friend. Right. So the family was giving him permission all they could. And, you know, it was, they were all like, why isn't he dying? Why isn't he dying? And five minutes after his friend arrived, he, died. he passed away. Yep. Yep. But we controlled his pain with <clears throat> Yeah. There are lots of things. I had a lady who'd been chronically on morphine. When she died, she was... It's horrifying. She was getting 100 milligrams of morphine every three hours. Oh, wow. Um, because she'd been on so much chronically for her chronic illness. So, you know, it's whatever the person needs. But you're right. There are a lot of times people are really uncomfortable. What did you mean about a sub-cube button? It's um, it's a little it's a little subcutaneous needle mm -hmm. that you poke into the thigh. It has like a little uh, mechanism to lock it, and it has a rubber diaphragm, so you can put the needle in there. Actually, some of them have a rubber diaphragm, so you can just put the stem of the syringe in there, and uh, because the needle's already in the button, and that way you just it in and it goes right into the subcutaneous yeah. tissue and you don't have to stick them every time. So it's kind of like a butterfly. I mean, you can put a butterfly. Yeah. And right. Then, so like same, having an IV. Same idea, but there's no needle showing. Right. Kind of. It's just this this little okay. rubber diaphragm. Huh. Something yeah. to give it through. That's yeah. neat. And it's really, you know, it's great in places. We don't do IV Guessing the medications. Needles really small. Yeah. So yeah. It goes in. Really tiny. And then we just, we, we move it every 24 hours in somebody who's got good subcutaneous tissue. 
If not, we move it more often than that. Mm -hmm. um, but it really saves you, having to stab how do people. you keep it there? Tape or? Yeah, just, stitch? or a little, um, uh, you know, a little tegaderm. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. It works really well. Yeah, 